Welcome to season two of Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I am joined once again by my fellow co-founder, senior counsel and freedom fighter, David Yurishami. Now, last week we, uh, we told all of you, our listeners and viewers, those who, uh, who uh, checked in with us, that, uh, that David would be arguing our lawsuit against Twitter and Biden, the Biden administration over their censorship of speech uh, that did not comport with the Biden administration's COVID-19 uh, propaganda. Uh, basically, if you went to Twitter and you wanted to uh, convey information about COVID-19, the effects of vaccines or whatever, uh, Twitter and the Biden administration decided that if it's, uh, if it's information that <coughs> does not comport with what they want the official message to be about COVID-19, uh, then they would censor you. Um, so we taped our podcast last Thursday and, uh, and David argued the case the following day, last Friday. So I'd like to uh, welcome David and, and have him uh, kind of fill, in, fill us in, uh, for those of you who are lasting last, listening last week to, uh, to what happened. But if you could first just give a brief summary and overview of this case uh, for those who are, who are tuning in for the first time. And then, and then um, I'm sure Alyssa will be uh, curious to hear how the, uh, how the oral argument went. So David, welcome and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Rob. And it's good to be back. And we've uh, gotten back to some consistency with these podcasts for 2021, which is good. So as by, by way of background, the Biden administration was frustrated that the social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, Google, were not doing enough to censor speech critical of the uh, administration's vaccine policy, which the administration called a true war effort. In other words, it was an existential effort to save America. So um, now keep in mind that Facebook and Twitter are already censoring people on their own for political views, but apparently not doing enough for the Biden administration's vaccine policy. So they call them in on the carpet they read them the riot act. And according to news reports and the administration's spokesperson, they not only told Twitter and the other social media platforms to get their act in gear and to do the administration's bidding by censoring speech, this White House spokesman said, we actually told them how to get rid of it. The social media giants agreed and in fact, just a month later, came out with the statement that they were partnering with the White House to um, uh, elevate the White House's vaccine uh, speech, which of course means to demote other speech, to terminate, suspend accounts, et cetera. So what we alleged in our complaint, which was a class action lawsuit on behalf of our client, a Dr. Colleen Huber, a naturopath in Arizona, who had simply posted a link to a news article about bad outcomes in Israel from the vaccine. Well, that was apparently enough to terminate her account, not let her appeal. And we sued on her behalf on all others similarly situated. That means the class of individuals who've had their accounts uh, censored as a result of the conspiracy between the White House and Twitter, because as we've pointed out many times on this podcast, 
The First Amendment free speech protects you against government censorship, not a private company's. Had Twitter simply decided to do this on their own, their terms of service, it might have violated some other state law, but it would not have violated the First Amendment. But because they weren't enforcing their terms of service adequately, and the only reason they did be, was because they entered into a conspiracy to act on behalf of the government, they became a state actor. The First Amendment applies, and we sue. Now, um, the first order of business when you sue the government and Twitter, of course, is they make sure that you're in San Francisco District Court. The terms of service require any lawsuit to be in San Francisco. So we acquiesced because we originally filed in Arizona, um, knowing that they would make this move. So we acquiesced. We're now in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, which is situated, at least in our case, in San Francisco. Our judge, Judge uh, Chen, an Obama appointee, he's just recently gone on to senior status, which means their workload is reduced, um, but they still are getting their full pay pension. Um, we had warned in the previous podcast that as an Obama appointee and based upon the decisions that we had seen, that we were going to get a somewhat um, hostile um, uh, welcome from the judge. Now, what we mean by hostile is not nasty or mean. We just mean... Which it can be. It, yeah, it can, it can be, be, certainly. It Especially in Rob's case, abortion yeah. cases. In Rob's abortion cases, where we're defending the right of um, uh, pro-life individuals, uh, it gets ugly. Um, and it can get ugly when we're suing and dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood, because some reason progressive judges seem to embrace them with special attention and care. Um, no pun intended. Um, but in this case, I think we really meant that this was likely to be ideologically hostile, that the judge is coming in. First of all, he's a progressive and um, anti-vax speech is like, you know, Trump speech. I mean, it's hated just without even thinking about what it is. And secondly, it's in San Francisco. And the world in San Francisco was built on and around the social media giants. Um, uh, lawyers and judges who work in the government tend to retire and go to work for Twitter and Facebook is, or big law firms that represent Twitter and Facebook. Um, and of course, the law firm that represents Twitter in this case, Perkins Cooey, which we call Perkins Coy, be, to be coy, um, uh, pun is intended there, um, is the same firm that represents the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, the Democratic Party, and all of the Russiagate, and all of the, the dossier, the fake dossier, all of that stuff is Perkins Coie. And they're the firm that's representing Twitter. And of course, the government's represented by government lawyers from the Department of Justice Civil Division. And um, so we, we had the argument last week and we had indicated this hostile welcome. Um, but I think the takeaway is really threefold. 
And the argument was all about whether or not we had alleged enough facts to establish state action, a conspiracy between the White House and Twitter. What's interesting is that while Judge Chen started off, and normally the motions, the two motions were filed, one on behalf of President Biden by the government lawyer, and one on behalf of Twitter. Normally in an oral argument, you start with the, um, the side that uh, is the movement, the, the maker of the motion. So we would have started with the government and Twitter. But Judge Chen, we had three hearings that day. We were the second. The first hearing was a long regulatory type of thing, took about 45 minutes. Judge Chen went right to the heart of the issue and he came right at me and said, isn't this problematic? We have all this case law in the Northern District, the District Court in the Northern District of California, ruling in favor of Twitter and so forth and Facebook and Google on these state action claims. And I made my argument and he pushed back. Um, but I think legitimately he wanted to understand our case. And Rob and I both came away thinking that while he started off rather hostile, he was a thoughtful judge and he asked good questions. After I was done harping on my points, he then turned to the government lawyer who I must say, with all due apologies to my uh, friend on the other side, just was not prepared and did not have anything intelligent to say to the judge because the judge turned the tables and said, well, Mr. Ushami is making the point that he's alleged sufficient facts and there's reasonable inference and we have to take these facts in the aggregate. Uh, what say you? And he stumbled over himself and the judge tried to help him a little bit, but he just could not articulate an argument. The judge then turned to Twitter's attorney, who's a senior partner at Perkins Coie and probably billing Twitter thousands of dollars an hour, along with all of the lesser partners who were likely on the call and the associates and the paralegals you know, amounting to, you know, $10,000 an hour, I'm guessing, but it, it, it's a, not a small fee. And he's standing at a podium, right? This is a Zoom call, but they've got a room apparently there at Perkins Coie with the podium, probably the big screens to give them all their docs. But keep in mind the way big firms operate. The senior, senior partner touches the file every so often. But who does the real grunt work? Well, the associates and maybe a junior partner. The senior partner, he gets the briefs and he gets the memos about what's important and the talking points. So he gets up there and he starts making assertions about what's in the cases. Well, the cases that he cited, especially one in particular that Twitter and the President Biden were really relying upon um, he kept saying, well, this case looked at conspiracy and ruled against it. And it's exactly the facts of our case. So when I had my opportunity for rebuttal, I simply said, Your Honor, you can Google that case and the word conspiracy and conspire. It doesn't exist. The guy didn't even read the case himself. And at the end of the day, if we were to be playing on an absolute level playing field, I would have said, 
it's likely that this was one of those rare oral arguments where the judge moved from being rather hostile to our position to actually leaning in our favor that might have ruled in our favor. But keep in mind, this is an Obama appointee. This is San Francisco. So I would not hold my breath. And as Rob, I quote Rob all the time to say, we hold our nose in the lower court and we wait till we get to the appellate courts to really get a fair fight or at least a moderately fair fight. Yeah, and, and the, um, a couple of points I wanna, I wanna make and, and kind of continue with that theme. One of my other lines, which is consistent with that is, you know, a Judge Chen might be the first judge to rule on this issue, but he's not gonna be the last. And, uh, you know, normally you would say like, you know, the Ninth Circuit, it's like, oh, there's no hope in the Ninth Circuit, but the Ninth Circuit has, has changed quite a bit from the appointees that, uh, that President Trump put there at the, uh, at the appellate level. So this is gonna be a very interesting case. I wanna make uh, one other point. You, you said early on about how we acquiesced to moving it from Arizona to Northern District of California. Bear in mind, Arizona, as well as Northern District of California are in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So that wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna change the ultimate goal is to get up in the appellate courts um, you know, to, get a, to get a ruling on this. But the other thing is, I wouldn't say it was necessarily an acquiescence. If we actually thought we had a, a, a good, solid basis for, re, for resisting that move, um, we would have done so. But we looked, at, we looked at the case law pretty closely on this, particularly relevant recent cases dealing with this very same issue. And almost uh, unilaterally, actually, every, I mean, across the board, they, uh, they granted the, uh, the motions to transfer the case. So it was one of those things, it's not, it wasn't worth, um, you know, throwing resources towards because it was as a matter of law, we were going to lose that. And so right. that's why I just don't want to say, because I don't think we acquiesced to anything. In well, that's certainly wanna, true. That was, that was that probably not a good choice of words yeah, there, but we're that, not you're right. Yeah. Uh, at this, uh, there's no right. appeasement on any of these things. No appeasement in this yeah. camp. And, and I got to tell you that point when, when David came up on his rebuttal and there was that senior partner who was making the claim that this, you know, this one case uh, was, was the one that was right on point and that they should prevail. And David made the point that, you know, the case doesn't even use the word conspiracy anywhere in there. It's not even about conspiracy. You could, you could kind of, you could see the smoke coming out of his ears because he must've had either misread something that one of his associates, you know, handed him on a sticky note or put up on the board or whatever it was. But uh, that wasn't a good time for him. And I will say, I was, I thought the judge, you know, you, as long as you, I mean, all we ever want is a fair hearing, right? And you never know. A hearing is, is not always and quite frequently is never representative of what comes out on paper at the end of the day. But at least it gives you an idea of maybe the direction it's going and so forth. And I thought the judge asked the right questions, right? One of the things that they kept wanting to argue is, is that this was joint action or some other theory for state action other than conspiracy. <laughs> they, and which is why he kept highlighting that one case that had nothing to do with conspiracy. And I just wanted to just take one moment because right, we always hear, oh, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, right? It's kind of the, the modern uh, uh, you know, term to, to dismiss something as being you know, illegitimate. It's a conspiracy theory. Well, conspiracy is a legitimate legal uh, cause of action. A legitimate way of uh, of, uh, of legally alleging state action. So when you have a private actor conspiring with the government, it's state action and it triggers constitutional protection. We, we prosecute civil and criminal conspiracies every single day in the courts across this country. So when MSNBC or NBC or one of these other you know, left-wing, you know, they take, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. That's not what we're talking about here. A conspiracy is a legitimate 
legal cause of action, you need to show an agreement, which can be proven by circumstantial evidence. You don't need to have like a signed contract of some sorts. And it's typically proven by circumstantial evidence in an overt act and furtherance of the conspiracy, such as shutting down our client's Twitter account. You know, one of the interesting things, and this is as an example of a conspiracy, right? My, uh, it's an FBI agent wants to come into my office and, uh, you know, and find a certain paper or something, but he doesn't, doesn't want to go through the, you know, the burdensome Fourth Amendment process of getting a warrant to do so by a neutral and detached magistrate. So he goes over to my neighbor and he asked the neighbor, hey, can you go into Rob's you know, office, search through his papers and find this document and bring it to me? Now, normally, if, you know, if my neighbor just went into my office without my permission, it might be a trespass. It might be, it's not state action. There's no violation of the Constitution. But if he's doing so in agreement with that FBI agent, then that's now state action. The FBI agent can't circumvent the Constitution by having a private actor do its bidding for him. And you know, one of the questions I think with the judge asked, I thought you answered it very well with your analogy to a, um, uh, you know, to to a, a conspiracy of like a mafia type conspiracy. But the fact that my that my neighbor could, even if he had my permission to come into my office whenever he wanted to, and he could have done that independent of the government asking him to do so, the fact that the government did ask him to do so and then profited or benefited from him doing so makes his action state action, right? And so the judge kept making the point, well, couldn't they, couldn't Twitter have just done it anyways under their term of service? Yeah, they, they might've been able to do that uh, be under their terms of service because of section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is also a part of this case. But they did it to do the bidding of the government to make sure that they would do it because the government had a goal and an objective that they wanted to be advanced and promoted by utilizing Twitter to do so. And so this is a civil conspiracy where there is state uh, state action, regardless of Twitter's independent, uh, you know, ability to to restrict to restrict uh, anyone's speech um, under the Communications Decency Act. But this is a it's a, as you obviously, if you anybody watching the news and listening to the news, this is exceedingly important, right? This uh, putting a clamping down on the government working with social media to promote its objectives. Because think about this. I mean, think how dangerous this is. And, and we know Twitter, you know, they shut down the Twitter account of, uh, of President Trump. Meanwhile, they kept up the Twitter account of, uh, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini, right? So, I mean, it's just absurd how they, you know, how they can justify one over the other, other than it's just pure politics. You could change the, the outcome of an election by shutting down your opposition's social media accounts because of the, how, so the, the importance of social media today and getting information out and so forth. I think even I, I think I saw, you know, GoFundMe shut down the, the fundraising efforts of those truckers up in Canada. Right. So even even to raise funds and to do other things. Now, what's the answer to that? You know, we got to create alternate platforms. But where we stand right now, where these things have grown so huge, um, they can uh, they can really you know, they could they could change literally could change the outcome of elections, particularly if they're doing the bidding of one party like Twitter is doing here for the uh, for the Biden administration, not to mention changing public policy and so forth. So this is this is a very very important uh, very important case. Let me add two things, Rob, and that I think that's the right perspective. Um, one is substantive law, and two is procedural for our listeners who aren't lawyers. On the substantive side, I was asked by a friend of mine last night um, on this very question that Rob raises because Twitter, under its terms of service, could have done what it had did as a um, 
co-conspirator with the Biden White House, could have done it on its own, and we would have not had a case to sue under the Constitution, under the First Amendment. And so the question is asked, well, one, so you get a ruling, and they have to pay the, whatever damages there are and attorney's fees, and, and you get a ruling that they behave badly and in violation of the Constitution, the White House and Twitter. So what? Uh, the next day, Twitter can just say, okay, we've withdrawn from the conspiracy. Now we're going to terminate her account under the terms of service. That's possible. But in lawfare, we know that before they do anything now, they're going to think twice about it. They're going to be hesitant because we were successful. Now we're not successful yet, but we're hoping to be ultimately. So that's number one. Number two, We've also sued, and this is still the substantive part of my points here, we've also sued to invalidate Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act. And that's the act that grants all the social media platforms absolute immunity if they engage in conduct that violates the Constitution, that violates California's um, Civil Rights Act, which it has, and which we are applied to protect speech in California. So um, the lawsuit has the possibility of having lasting effect because, and I just, I turned off my video, Rob, because I saw that my uh, internet connection was a little unstable. And this seems to help. So um, from the perspective of what might happen as a result of this lawsuit, if we invalidate Section 230, at least as an offensive weapon, and Rob can speak to this in more particulars, um, then we will have done lasting good for this country and free speech. The procedural point is this. Keep in mind that by the time we get to this oral argument, the moving parties, President Biden filed their own 30 or 40 or 50 page brief with all the facts and all the legal argument and all the case law. Twitter filed its own separate 30 to 50 page brief. And then we filed a response, our own um, extended brief, because we got permission to file one response to both motions of about 50 pages in total. And then President Biden and Twitter had the chance to reply to that with a shorter brief, but to reply to the points that we make in our opposition. So the court has before it, by the time he gets to oral argument, a wealth of information from both sides, the facts, the case law, the arguments, and a good judge will have had his clerks and himself go through those and already have pretty much an idea how he or she is going to rule by the time they get to oral argument. Now, oral argument can be used to clarify some ambiguous points, to maybe ask the parties to address something they didn't address in their briefs or didn't address as well as the judge would like. But typically, not always, but typically, the um, oral argument is, a, is kind of a waste of time. The judge already has made up his mind or her mind. You make your arguments. 
the judge listens, the judge asks. Sometimes the judge will just sit back on his heels and say, fine, the argument's done. Other times, you know which way the judge is leaning by virtue of the questions they're asking. They're all just ideologically driven, the so-called hostile environment we talked about. But on occasion, and this was one of them, you get a judge who might have been leaning in one direction, and certainly he was, but his thoughtful questioning would allow him to move off of that. Now, we'll see what happens here. But um, the fact that um, we get to the point in our argument and the other side, and especially Twitter's very high-powered, well-paid lawyer, um, doesn't even know the cases. What was interesting about that one case, Rob, is that in my opposition, I made the same exact point. It doesn't say conspiracy in the case that you say is dispositive, that you say answers the question, that this case should be dismissed. So I said, it doesn't even mention conspiracy. So what was their reply? He got it from some associate or something. They pulled the complaint, not the, the, the court ruling on the complaint. And in the complaint, there was one tiny allegation that mentioned conspiracy. But the judge in the case that ruled simply ignored that because it wasn't actually a factual allegation. So that's where the, the, the situation with this lawyer came up. He should have been prepared. He wasn't. It, shame on him. Twitter didn't get its money's worth. Well, we got our money's worth. <laughs> so hey, uh, on the Section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act, just briefly, because uh, we've been down this road before, we've been trying to get um, this, uh, this provision knocked out, and this might be the best vehicle um, for doing so. Now, Section 230 has, you know, has some valuable aspects to it, right? It, it operates both as a sword and as a shield. I have no problem with how it operates as a shield. So, for example, if you run a blog or if you, you know, open up your Facebook page or whatever for people to make comments and so forth, the, the shield component of it protects you, the owner of the platform or the owner of the blog, from being sued for defamation or for, for something else, you know, for, for being sued basically for whatever somebody else has posted on your website. Right, so that allows really the marketplace of ideas because a person who's posting is the one who's going to be responsible for his own speech, right? If he's going to post something up on a blog that's defamatory, the person who's defamed can sue that person for making those statements, but they can't pursue under Section 230 the person who operates the blog or, or whatever whatever uh, platform that those statements might be on, and and that's to me is is reasonable, right? Because then it'll and Robert, way, let me just jump in for yeah. a second. And for our listeners, so for example, in the, in the, in the pre-social media world, if a newspaper uh, published a letter to the editor or an op-ed by someone else, and they said something defamatory, the person who was defamed could sue the writer of the letter or the op-ed, but could also sue the newspaper because the newspaper published a defamatory statement by someone else. It doesn't matter under traditional defamation law or intentional infliction of emotional distress that if you say something that is tortious, that violates defamation law or some other provision of the law, then not only can the speaker be sued, but the person who publishes that speech could be sued. 
and, so, and that makes and, and you know that makes sense because think about how a newspaper is different than social media, right? Some editor had to have taken that letter, read the letter, and then decided that that letter was sufficient to then post in the editorial page or whatever the letter to the editor page or whatever, and then put the thing up. When you think about how blogs work, my goodness, it, to be able to to police all the comments and statements and things that are, that are made constantly, I mean, through the middle of the night to whatever. I mean, if, if somebody has access to it, they could go, you know, at any moment, they could go in and post something up there that for you to, to hire the staff to review every one of those, unlike the situation with the old, you know, old school newspaper, it just makes it unmanageable. And it, and it does undermine the ability to communicate freely through social media. So I don't have any problem with, with the shield component of it. The problem I have is with the sword component of it, right? And the sword component allows Twitter, for example, even though it's might be my Twitter account, which we don't have, we canceled all our social media, the, the, you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff, which by the way, is a footnote, you might still see them up there because I, I canceled them weeks ago, but they leave them up for like a month or so because they're trying to continually convince you to stay up, stay up, stay up. So you might still see it out there, but we stopped posting to any of those social media accounts. And, and, like, and by the way, their advertising dollars are driven by how many, yeah. you know, Facebook members or Twitter users. So they don't want you to go yeah. because they get to charge for the advertisers based upon the number of eyeballs they claim to have. Yeah. And we had 17,000 followers on Facebook, but you know, so be it. That's, that's the price you pay. So on this, on the sword part, this allows Facebook, for example, to go on to my or AFLC's Facebook page and and censor what what we're putting on our own plat on our own our own page. Right. It'd be like you know coming onto our website and telling us what you can and can't say on your website or going onto your like they did with President Trump. They just shut down what President look, it's his platform. And and so I, I don't have a problem with you know Twitter being immune from somebody suing because of a, you know, a, a post that was put on, on, you know, President Trump's Twitter account or somebody else's Twitter account. But I do have a problem with Twitter being able to go in and use, you know, use Section 230 as a sword and shut down other people's speech because they don't like it or because it doesn't uh, comport with their political ideology and political views. And uh, so that's where, so the sword part is what I have trouble with uh, Section 230. I think it undermines what the goal of Section 230 was, was to, you know, to enhance the marketplace of ideas. It undermines that by allowing the certain social media giants to, uh, to, censor, to censor a certain speech. And it, and it can change, like I said, it can change the outcome of elections, can change public policy. It, it, it has a, a very dramatic impact. So we're going after uh, Section 230 in this lawsuit. Hey, I, so this is probably a good time. I want to transition to a, and this is very much related to this censorship of speech, is this uh, so-called campaign against misinformation or so-called misinformation. Uh, and, you know, and I love that. It's like, you know, the left's all about that, but, you know, who gets to decide what is misinformation and what's not misinformation? I don't have a problem with that if they want me to be the censor and I'll be the one to decide what's misinformation and what's not misinformation, right? That there lies the, uh, the problem. And there's a recent story on in Fox News entitled Alleged Sex Traffickers Rapists, anti-Semites remain on Spotify without issue 
while Rogan, right, Joe Rogan, faces boycott calls. Spotify hosts convicted criminals and alleged sex traffickers who haven't faced calls for censorship, end quote. So that's a long title. There's a subtitle in there. But the, the thrust of this, and this goes back to the point, these big, this big tech censorship is dangerous, right? They hold way too much power. The, the, the internet is such a unique, uh, right? We, we no longer have the uh, town crier in the public square, right? The, the, the town crier now is the person who's posting on and social media or on their website or whatever. And, and these, these companies that run these social media platforms, I mean, they, these companies are run by woke boards who at the end of the day, they're totalitarians. These guys want to censor speech, right? Think about that. You've got Joe Rogan, right? Is, and, and, and Joe Rogan's not even, you know, he's not even a conservative, but some of his podcasts, when he's, when he's had these different doctors, Dr. McCullough, for example, and others, you know, challenging the, the orthodoxy of beliefs, as it were, on COVID-19, Boy, it's driving the left, you know, crazy. And they're calling for him to be shut down. Meanwhile, you know, you have, like I said, there's sex traffickers, there's rapists, there's anti-Semites. They, they remain on Spotify. They can have their platform. They can have their music, uh, including music that uses the N-word, you know, every other sentence with some of these gangster rap uh, rappers, even though apparently, you know, context doesn't matter. N-word is the new blasphemy, right? You can't, there's no way you can... You can't even utter that word anywhere. But yet on Spotify, you'll find music from rappers and everything that use that word all the time. And yet Joe Rogan is the one that's facing uh, facing censorship. You know, how do we stop this? Right. Because this is this is really going to the core of a of a fundamental freedom. Granted, it's private actors, so you don't trigger constitutional protections, but it does have a corrosive effect on our country and and our freedoms. You know, and uh, Dan Bongino, who I, I listen to his podcasts and his his uh, radio show quite frequently, you know, constantly talking. It's not just him, though, but he's he's been one that I hear a lot talking about parallel economy and have parallel uh, platforms. You know, that's a start, but there's certainly a lot more needs to be done. And with regard to that, I mean, for example, we dumped, you know, YouTube or ScrewTube, Facebook and Twitter. And now you can, for example, this podcast, you can find it on Rumble which is one of these alternate platforms that doesn't censor speech like YouTube does um, or Gab or some of these, uh, some of these others. But this is a, uh, this is a serious, uh, a serious issue. I know, uh, you know, some of the congressmen talking about antitrust laws and, and things dealing with these social media uh, platforms, but you know, the way you, the way you, to me, you fight censorship is you create uh, alternate ways of, uh, of getting that, uh, of getting the message out. But this is a, uh, you know, this is a big problem. Um, so, David, your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think this issue of Spotify and Joe Rogan exemplifies the illiteracy and the hypocrisy of the progressives, of the left. So, as you pointed out, there's all sorts of bad people on Spotify. First of all, kudos to Spotify that they didn't, you know, capitulate to the demands to, to remove Rogan. Now, my guess is it has a lot to do with his $100 million deal that's reported to, he, uh, to have made. And the fact that he brings in huge, he's the biggest podcaster around, huge numbers, and therefore big dollars to Spotify. So, but for whatever reason, kudos to Spotify, because we've seen most of these platforms capitulate um, that's number one. Number two, 
we talked, you talked about the bad people that were on there that Neil Young and, and uh, whoever the other one is and all the people who were boycotting and raising a stink. Well, one of the individuals that apparently still has a Spotify account is Louis Farrakhan, the head of the Nation of Islam, who's a vicious Jew hater, white people hater, comes up with conspiracy theories about Jews, you know, trying to enslave blacks. I mean, on and on and on. But he's still on there. And keep in mind that Rogan was attacked, not for what he necessarily said about vaccines, but that he had two experts, well-respected doctors and researchers, who talked about the issues surrounding the vaccine and the various therapies that were available for treating COVID-19 that were dismissed by the government. And they were lengthy hours, an hour long podcast, and much was said, and you can agree and disagree, but it hardly was off the wall conspiracy stuff. Louis Farrakhan on the whole question of vaccines said just recently as follows, and I'm quoting, don't take the vaccines. Now he's talking to his black nation of Islam audience. Don't let them vaccinate you with their history of treachery through vaccines, through medication. We will not accept your vaccine because we're not accepting death. And his point is that it's all about the white people trying to um, use the vaccines to um, depopulate the population, um, which he also likens to um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which other people have talked about in terms of population control and the use of the vaccines to kill people. Now, um, irrespective, by the way, his argument is based upon the studies that were done by the US government. And this is where power uh, can corrupt absolutely, where they used um, uh, African-Americans in the South to do um, testing on syphilis and the effects of syphilis, and they gave them, or they didn't treat individuals with this disease, um, even though the people thought they were being treated and they followed them for a number of years. And it was kept secret until it finally came out um, uh, after decades of conspiracy secrets by government bureaucrats and doctors. Um, so it's not like Farrakhan is speaking entirely out of turn. But of course, um, the evidence of, of this conspiracy is somewhat uh, weak, shall we say. But if you're, going to, if you're going to argue that Rogan should be um, despotified, Farrakhan, for his tens of thousands of listeners, and there's many Nation of Islam followers, many, tens of thousands, he is absolutely the word on these things. So it's not like Rogan having a discussion with experts about theories and, and, and problems with the science. This is just Farrakhan issuing absolute religious edicts to his followers based upon nothing but his notion that white people and Jews are out to destroy blacks. No call to get him despotified. In fact, you can often find progressives embracing Louis Farrakhan. Um, go figure. But again, that's part of the 
hypocrisy and the illiteracy of the left. Yeah, and and uh, we've got uh, we probably have time to cover one more topic, which is related to this. And I want to I want to transition uh, into it. Again, it's all it's all interrelated, right? We talked about the Biden and social media conspiring to shut you know to to promote a particular uh, political message or to shut down a message that is contrary to a political message. Talk about Orwellian. Talk about you know dictatorships. I mean, that's what they do in China and the Soviet Union, for goodness sakes. And then uh, obviously we have the big tech. Uh, social medias and and the woke uh, left calling for everybody to be shut down and censored and in a very hypocritical fashion, as you uh, as you pointed out, and as as the Fox News story points out. But we also got have uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the federal government. This is pretty shocking. This is a uh, this is a national terrorism advisory bulletin that was issued on February 7th of this year. So just a few days ago. And it's uh, the summary of terrorism threat to the U.S. homeland. Let me read from this uh, from this official Homeland Security Bulletin. The United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and malinformation, or MDM. So now they have an acronym. For this, of course they did. MDM, <laughs> of course we have an acronym. Makes it all sound, you know, so much more legitimate. Introduced and or amplified by foreign and domestic threat actors, right? They always have to throw the foreign in there to really, you know, create the intrigue and to create, a, you know, some semblance of, oh, this is really a true threat. But also domestic is what they claim. It. These threat actors seek to exacerbate social friction, to sow discord and undermine public trust in government institutions to encourage unrest, which could potentially inspire acts of violence. That's their summary. I want to get to the, they have a, a, a section called key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment. And these include, and here's number one, the number one threat factor, the proliferation of false or misleading narratives, which so discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions, colon, for example, there is widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud. Huh. And COVID-19. Grievances associated with these themes inspired violent, violent extremist attacks, plural, during 2021. What are they talking about Antifa and Black Lives Matter? <laughs> Those are the only violent extremist attacks that occurred in 2021. I'm sure they're referring to January 6, which wasn't was number one a singular event, number two was an attack, and number three was hardly violent. There was only one person, one innocent person that was killed by any weapon in that during that whole um, you know uh, protest, and that was Ashley Babbitt who was shot dead by a reckless, and she was unarmed, white woman, shot dead by, a, by a, a black campus police security officer who has a history of recklessness. And then this, the second bullet is, malign foreign powers have, have and continue to amplify these false or misleading narratives in efforts to damage the United States. So, here, so the greatest threat, the number one key factor to this threat, threat for violence is spreading misinformation about uh, about election fraud and COVID-19. 
I mean, this this is right out of the Soviet Union stuff. My goodness. If you have, and as you know, we've mentioned this many times on the podcast, I'll repeat here. We filed a petition for an extraordinary writ in the Michigan Supreme Court, supported by over 40 affidavits from percipient witnesses. That means people who observed with their own two eyes, not, not hearsay, percipient witnesses as to uh, malfeasance, right? They want to use fraud. You can call it malfeasance. You, if you want to more broadly call it election fraud, but, but specifically, is it, is it an election fraud crime? Maybe, maybe not, but certainly a lot of malfeasance that would call into question the legitimacy of the election. We ended up losing uh, that petition, the Supreme Court, four to three, four to three, right? This wasn't a slam dunk seven, nothing. And, and the dissenters wrote a you know, very good opinion, making the point, look, there's plenty of evidence here. All we were calling for too, we weren't calling for overturning the election. And in most of all these lawsuits that I've, I've seen, they're not about overturning the election. They want a forensic audit to get to the bottom what why all of a sudden the middle of the night you know you you go to bed and trump's winning in the middle of the night you've got this you know trucks backing up dumping you know dump loads of uh, dumping loads of uh, absentee and write-in ballots and all of a sudden the numbers totally flip you know 90 percent of all those ballots are for joe biden and you know you know there's there's nothing wrong with that you don't have nobody has a problem with that and as i pointed out when we pointed out before the guidance from our secretary of state here in michigan who's a left-wing progressive with regard to the absentee ballots, was that you should presume the signatures on those ballots to be valid, which is contrary to what the law is. The law is just the opposite. You have to validate an absentee ballot. Why? Because absentee ballots uh, are create the greatest risk of election fraud. And so she issued guidance that was contrary to that. She was sued in October before the election. Unfortunately, the judge didn't rule until the following March, well after the election, nothing you could do, and found that the guidance was illegal. So the, the idea that there's, you know, that there's all these big lies that this was a pristine election, and, and Michigan obviously was a was a very important uh, uh, state for Trump. I think he only lost by 150 some odd thousand votes, which is minuscule, and the number of absentee ballots was was three point I think three million absentee ballots. So the, the idea that this all of a sudden that this is a pristine election and that you can't criticize it, and by criticizing how this election has taken place and trying to promote laws that could minimize this uh, this uh, uh, election fraud, whether actual or perceived, to ensure that we have a legitimate elections and that people can trust the outcome of the elections. For you to make statements about that or write articles about that or publish about that, that that somehow is domestic extremism and to, and to challenge these stupid COVID-19 policies so-called missing the only one that's providing misinformation as i mentioned you know in our last podcast the king of misinformation is anthony fauci right he said these lockdowns would save millions of lives well lo and behold after all the evidence is in the science is in and they observed these things objectively they did no such thing in fact the collateral damage costs you know tens or hundreds of thousands of lives so who's the king of misinformation is anthony fauci a domestic terrorist i like to ask the uh, department of homeland security because he's 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 the one that the greatest uh, you know purveyor of false information about COVID nineteen is Anthony Fauci himself. He must be a domestic terrorist. I hope they're tapping his phones. I hope they're you know they're uh, looking into his computer and and going through all the things that they do uh, you know they've done with this dragnet with regard to January sixth. They ought to be doing it with the uh, with the own um, government officials, uh, including Anthony Fauci. David, <laughs> you know what 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 if you. 
kind of take a little higher altitude, what really bothers me about this is the statement. Remember, this is from the Department of Homeland Security. This is a bulletin about the most exigent national security threat that exists today. And what it says at its essential core is that any speech that, and this is almost a quote, Rob can correct the actual quote, that undermines the public's trust in government entities or agencies. Our entire government, read the Federalist Papers for goodness sakes, our constitution, the political structure of who we are as a country is all about a healthy mistrust of government. It's not a you know, irrational mistrust because the saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is absolutely true. It's been established and demonstrated throughout history. And we see it time and time again, as Rob is pointing out with Fauci and everything else. And all you have to do is look back on the COVID protocols and see what they did in the name of public health. The very fact that our government national security apparatus, the Department of Homeland Security, along with the National Security Council, the CIA, et cetera, FBI, et cetera, et cetera, that our national security apparatus, including the Department of Defense, considers it a national security threat for people to speak badly about the government. I mean, that was the purpose of the free speech and the First Amendment and the, and the special protections of the press. Remember, the First Amendment actually mentions the press, the free press. That's an important part because they're considered the fifth estate, right? Or the fourth estate, excuse me. Right, you got the three branches of government. Well, they count the press as a fourth branch because the press is supposed to always mistrust government and hold them accountable. Well, guess what? All you have to do look at mainstream media know is if it's a Republican like a Donald Trump in power, the press mistrusts everything that's being said and even manufactures a conspiracy if necessary, along with the Hillary campaign about a Russian dossier and Russian collusion and the Obama outgoing Obama administration, they're, they're willing to be critical. But if it's an Obama administration, if it's a Biden administration, if it's Dr. Fauci, anything you say that's critical of the government is a national security threat. Point, just a case in point, one data point. Remember when Trump was saying, I'm pushing vaccines, we're gonna come out with vaccines. My administration is, is going to solve this problem with vaccines. That was the Trump and he pushed Fauci and NIH and the FDA and everyone else to get these vaccines approved through emergency authority. What did the media and all the democratic polls, the politicians say? How can you trust a government approved vaccine under Donald Trump? Can't be trusted. I won't take it, said Pelosi. Biden had the same critical response. As soon as Biden walks in and says, vaccine, that's the mandate, it's a war effort. All of a sudden, the media, the politicians on the left, vaccines are from Mount Sinai, right? They're etched in stone. You've got to get the vaccine or you die or you cause other people to die. It is the hip. There's a 
two prongs by the progressives and the left, hypocrisy and illiteracy. They, they think that they're well-educated and they have PhDs, but when you actually talk to them about the issues that they wanna argue on, whether it's pro-life, whether it's vaccines, whether it's free speech, whatever it is, they are effectively illiterate. They don't really understand the argument. It's a visceral thing by them. They just argue by what they're, they've been told over the years and they've, they've swallowed in their mother's milk. And they live with a constant, in a constant state of, of contradiction, of hypocrisy. And all you have to do there is look to the news accounts. Look at all the leftist politicians who embrace mask mandates, whose pictures are in the media in public events, right next to other people, not wearing a mask. And they do it with impunity. They don't care that it's an obvious hypocrisy. Why? Because the media is not going to call them to order, take them to task. The, the media is going to give them a pass. And so the only place you see it is on Fox News or on this podcast or some other podcast. Yeah. The, the exact language from the uh, from this bulletin was undermine public trust in government institutions to encourage unrest. And, and again, I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't see one reference of Antifa or Black Lives Matter in here. Right. right? No. Nope. Oh, my God. That, that was that's the quintessential example if they're, if they're actually referring to it. And, you know, conservatives, we're not calling for people to, to shut down other people's speech. Right. Nobody's ever doing that. You know, even if the you know the 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 people who are running Rumble, like, hey, join us, come on, this is a free speech platform. But they're they're tyrants, they are tyrants. Don't people understand? The left are tyrants, and they don't even abide by their own their own prescriptions, right? They don't like the fact that you see this these truckers, these freedom truckers, that are actually you know having a big impact now because these is that unrest? No, it's it's called you know the right to free speech. They're boycotting. They're doing all those things. And you're absolutely right. The uh, First Amendment was it, it's it's in the, the nature of our constitutional republic is that we do distrust government. Why? Because we our, our constitution is designed, our constitution designed to do two things. I said time, time again, prevent tyranny and protect liberty. And you prevent tyranny by by reducing the power of government. And and the fact that you're calling into question these things that the government is doing, that that somehow is going to make you a domestic terrorist. That is so anti-American. I read this bulletin. You might as well put up top, you know, the uh, Chinese homeland security or Russia homeland security. That's where we're going. And you want to talk about, you know, undermining public trust in government. Every time I hear Joe Biden open his mouth at any press conference or something, my, my public trust and, uh, and confidence in this government administration is totally undermined because that man's incompetent, is incompetent and not capable of being president of the United States. And it's scary. It's scary right now. But this before DHS sign, bulletin yeah. is, sho is, is shocking. It just, it's absolutely and, shocking. And before we sign off, because uh, yeah. I know we're running up against the clock here, you know, when, when Donald Trump was president and he called out CNN and MSNBC as fake news and was attacking their credibility, what did we hear from the left? <laughs> Donald Trump is undermining free speech and the freedom of the press. He's undermining the very important role that the press has in criticizing government. Yeah. Democracy itself, our republic itself, right? Right, yeah. right. All of a sudden, that's no longer important. The other point that I wanted to make, Rob, is the point that you just made about a role of government in protecting liberty and, and um, what is the language you Preventing use? Tyranny. Preventing tyranny. Preventing tyranny. Preventing tyranny, right, right. Protecting liberty. Why is that? And Rob's spoken to this when he gave a beautiful um, tutorial on 
the constitutional framework of our government. And that is where do the powers of um, government come from? According to the Judeo-Christian Western civilization um, perspective, the individual based upon his soul as created by God is the individual that has the, the authority and the power over his own life. No one can tell that individual other than God and the, and the person has to be open to God what to do or how to do it. However, as individuals, we recognize that because we speak and have intelligence and we live together in social societies, we have to have a government. And what we do is we as individuals give up some of our liberties so that we can have a government and a civilization um, that promotes peace. Right? Instead of every time you have an argument with your neighbor, you go to war, you have a, a gun duel. No, we have a peaceful approach to these issues that protects us from foreign invaders and protects our liberty as individuals. But it's a limited government because we only give certain powers. And by the way, we don't turn over the power to the mob. We don't believe in West, in the West under the Judeo-Christian system in a simple democracy so that a majority of one can dictate what I have to do. We don't do that. Generally speaking, there is a majority rule, but it's limited. It's limited by indirect representation, as we've talked about on this podcast. It's limited critically by the Bill of Rights. Even if 99.9% .9 of the people want to shut me up right now because I'm saying something that triggers them, that upsets them, that, that criticizes government, the fact is, is you can't because I have the First Amendment. The First Amendment says it doesn't matter if everyone in the United States is opposed to my speech, my speech is protected. And that's the beauty of our federal constitutional republic. We're good, boy. A lot there, um, and that's something we can, you know, we can, we'll continue to, to um, you know, that's a theme I would say, you know, throughout throughout all of this. And and uh, well done, well said. And that is all the time that we have today. And and as always, we look forward to our next discussion. We thank all of you uh, who are joining us today. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble channel. As I mentioned, we officially dumped YouTube and Facebook, um, so we aren't posting uh, anything to any of those platforms. We long ago uh, dumped Twitter, and our podcasts are posted on Spotify, Stitcher, and perhaps other platforms uh, where you listen to your podcasts. We post them up on an RSS feed, and they get pushed out, and they show up on these platforms. It's all kind of magic, I guess. I'm not sure how it all works out, but you can find them there. And, uh, and they'll be playing anywhere the, uh, the sensors will allow them to uh, be played. But if you like the content, please follow us uh, and please spread the word. Uh, thank you again for, uh, for tuning in. And may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.